ends with material blessings in verse 28. Dew of heaven, fatness of the earth, plenty of grain and wine. And then what he's doing in verse 29 is giving him the Abrahamic blessing. Peoples and nations will serve you. Curses on those who curse you, blessing on those who bless you. So here's the blessing. It's gone from Abraham to Isaac. We saw that last week. And now as twisted as all of this is, down to Jacob. And now Jacob's destiny is determined. What can we say? Although I would say Jacob is a liar and he is a deceiver, he did see what Esau did not. He wanted this blessing. He, in some way, values these promises that God had given to his grandfather Abraham, to his father Isaac, in some way that Esau did not. What must we learn? I think immediately we should see sin's power. That the immediate pleasure and the power of sin are never worth choosing over the lasting spiritual gain that you will forfeit. Esau and his birthright, Isaac and this controlling appetite for food, sin always falsely advertises. It makes promises. It never delivers. Sin will never come back to you or to me and say, you've had enough. I'll leave you alone. It's always coming back for more. Whatever that sin is in your life, it is not worth it. I think one of the ways that sin has power is it maximizes what is temporary and it minimizes what is eternal. It is just like sugar or cheap carbs. Oh, I love cheap carbs. They temporarily satisfy you, but they leave you wanting for more. If you don't believe me, try one of those low-carb diets where you have to go off of them for a while and you feel the desire for them. Sin is like that. A few questions for you. What sin has power in your life? What sin? Once you've identified it, ask yourself, what do you believe about that sin that keeps you clinging to it? Maybe it's worry. Has worry ever added one minute to your life? Has it made it better? God's control is not diminished by our unbelief or by our worry. What does worry, your worry, reveal about what you actually trust? When you worry, do the work in your soul to ask yourself, what am I believing that's driving me to this instead of trusting God? Worry is actually a form of faith expressed wrongly. What about pride or unbelief or lust? Have they really ever satisfied you deeply, fully? If you're not trusting in Christ, 
Sin has a power over you that you don't fully even comprehend yet. We, we can't, you and me, we're image bearers of God. We can't escape the fact that we must serve someone or, or something. It, it doesn't matter. If you've not bowed your knee to Christ, no matter how good you appear, you're actually, deep down, serving sin. The Scriptures say you're a slave under its power. That you're actually at enmity with the very God who's made you. That's what actually makes the work and the life of Christ so beautiful. That he came into this world knowing it was full of spiritual captives to deliver spiritual captives, to break the power of sin, to pay the penalty of sin, and to defeat death. And we know that he actually did that because he alone was raised from the dead. Sin and death could hold us down, but they couldn't hold Jesus down. So don't run to sin. Because of Jesus Christ, you don't have to serve sin. You can actually turn from your sin and you can turn to Christ for the freedom and the salvation he alone in all the world gives. Trust Christ. If you're a Christian... When you think of the grace of God, don't only think of grace as that which cleanses you from sin. It does that, but it does even more. It gives you power to obey God. You as a Christian, you don't have to sin. You don't have to do it. No matter how good you think the end will be, that sin in your life is not worth it. Let me say a quick word to you if you're a younger person in the room. You're at a stage in your life where you can so easily check out and think sin really isn't that big of a deal, that it doesn't matter. And let me challenge you as you get older, don't trust your desires. They can deceive you. If you're still at home, I would encourage you, don't hesitate to talk to your parents about your struggles with sin. They love you. And learn from Jacob and Esau how sin at an even early age can have consequences for the rest of your life. For those of us who are older, don't we lament that this battle with sin never ends? That there's always that temptation or that besetting sin, it seems, that makes us struggle. How sad it is to know of Christians who only later in life walked away from the faith or ruined a legacy because of, of sin. We want its power to wane, but on this side of the cross, this side of heaven, it will not. Look at Isaac. He's beholden to desires, even late in his life. Rebecca, she's choosing deception rather than confrontation. Sin leads us all, always, where we don't want to go. It has power. And secondly, sin has consequences. Sin's power, sin's consequences. That's what we'll see secondly from this text. Look down at verse 30. I'll read now to the end of the chapter. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. 
And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me and I ate it all before you came and I blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me also, oh my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and he's taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he's cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him Lord over you and all his brothers I have given to him for servants and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, Obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him for a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? How critical is the timing in this story? It's just as soon as Isaac had finished the blessing, Jacob is scarcely out. Esau walks in just a few minutes earlier and destiny changes forever. How clearly God's sovereign hand on display. I think if we're honest, we would say Esau can feel more likable in this story. He's the victim, isn't he? He doesn't lie to his father when his father so tragically asked him, who are you? There in verse 32. Notice, after he realizes it's Esau, verse 33, Isaac trembled very violently. This is dramatic, traumatic. This old patriarch is having a very visible, physical reaction. 
he had planned a peaceful, private transfer of the blessing. Now he's publicly shaking violently. I don't, Isaac doesn't know who he blessed, but that person will be blessed. It can't be taken back. But ultimately, he does know. And ultimately, verse 34, Esau knows. And Esau then cries out with this great and bitter cry, two angry, sad, distraught men. How different this room than they both anticipated. Jacob has taken the birthright. He's taken Esau's blessing. Jacob's name means deceiver. He's lived up to that. Esau, though, is not right to think of himself as a victim. Jacob didn't just take his birthright. He sold his birthright to Esau because Esau wanted that lunch. Jacob schemed, but Esau, captive to his flesh, unable to see spiritually, appreciate the great promises that were being given by Yahweh to Abraham and to Isaac, sold his birthright for a meal. That's tied to this. Sin's consequences are often long. So Esau, in verse 36, is left to just say, is there any blessing left for me? Now, to his credit, whether he was happy or not, Isaac didn't go back. But what is clear, isn't it? Isaac never reserved a blessing for Jacob. He never intended to bless Jacob. Despite the fact that Esau had married foreign women and made the family life bitter, Isaac still wanted to give that blessing secretly to Esau. So the son who was meant to get this entire blessing is reduced to tears, verse 38, asking for just one blessing. It's a tragedy on so many levels, especially the blessing he receives in verse 40. Yes, what God had predicted in Genesis 25 Isaac affirms, the older you shall serve your brother. But if Jacob and his descendants will enjoy the dew of heaven, the fat of the earth, Esau and his descendants will not. The blessing given for the person is destiny for the people. Esau will be away from the land, but eventually Esau will break Jacob's yoke from his neck. So these promises go beyond the twins, their own lifetimes. Esau's descendants are the Edomites, which we read about in the Old Testament. They live outside the land. They give the Israelites trouble. They live out from under their authority. And eventually they break the yoke from their neck. But Esau's promises are concerned only with earthly blessings. He's a man who cannot see spiritually, who sells the birthright for one lunch. Sin, it can be forgiven, but it has consequences. And these consequences last much, much longer than the brief moment of pleasure that the sin had brought. Look at the rest of the consequences. Verse 41, Esau hates Jacob. He resolves to kill his brother Jacob. He will not submit to the word of the Lord. Isn't this Cain and Abel? Part two. Except Rebecca did find out. She tells Jacob to flee, to go to Haran. That's 
where her brother Laban lives. And he's to stay there until verse 45. Esau's anger subsides. He forgets. That's when Rebekah had planned to bring him back. For notice what she says. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? And it's not until verse 46 that finally Rebekah speaks to Isaac. And what does she say? Shrewdly, she raises the Hittite women with him that they both have had problems with. It seems at this point to be the one thing they agree on. And she seizes on it. So look down to chapter 28. Chapter 28, verse 1. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away. And he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. mother. So Jacob goes to where Abraham's servant was sent to find a wife for Isaac. Not Canaan go away, but he's going there with the Abrahamic blessing. It's going to be fruitful, multiply, become a great number of people. He will take possession of the land, so he is sent away. What about Esau? Look at verse 6. He sees Isaac, his father, has sent Jacob away with the blessing that he's not to take a wife from the Canaanite women, so what does he do? Verse 8. When Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Sin's consequences everywhere. Isaac suffered violence. Esau wept hates his brother, wants to murder him. Rebekah, who did not want to lose both of her sons in one day, ends up doing just that. Isaac goes away, unknown to Rebekah. She'll never see her son again. Jacob, the deceiver, will be deceived. And Esau, who so desperately wants his father to love him, goes to Ishmael and he marries his daughter. She's from the family, but she's from Ishmael's line, not the line of promise. Esau is passed over. Sin has consequences. It's devastated this family. Always so alluring to us, it never shows us all the consequences that will ripple out. Jenny read about Esau in Hebrews 12. When he wanted the blessing, he was rejected. He could not bring about a change of mind, even though he sought it with tears. Consequences of sin are so often such that we cannot undo them. The memories stay with us. Tangible outcomes that we can't roll back. 
broken trust that takes time to reveal habits that you can't just so easily break. What sin are you dabbling in that you think will not affect me? Whatever that is, remember these consequences. David Wells so rightly said, we live in a world where sin seems normal and righteousness seems strange. So much better to be thought strange than to run after sin. Think about consequences. Often, consequences are the unpleasant, unwelcome result. How we long to take those moments back when we're in the midst of the consequences that led up to that sin. Consider the consequences. And sin, it doesn't just destroy individuals. It destroys relationships. The sin in this account destroyed this family. Your sin will not just affect you. Your private sin will have public consequences. Of course, in God's world, private sin is is never private. You probably heard this before. You can choose your sin. You cannot choose your consequences. I mean, how much sadness have I known in my own life when I've hurt others because I've sinned against them? It's a private sin right now in your life that you need to take seriously? That you foolishly think I've got this under control? Your sin will affect others. Your life is playing out in a great cosmic spiritual battle. Private sin in this battle is not a small matter. I don't know of anyone who has really tasted the consequences of sin and has ever said, I'm so glad I did that. Let this sober you. I think one way to do that is to just think beyond the various sins, whether it's, it's lying or laziness or lust or pride or, or anger, and to think through where that will lead you if you let it run its course in your life. Let this warn you now. Sin also affects the church. For us as a church, this is one of the key ways we serve each other. We guard each other and we help grow each other from sin. So we take sin seriously, not because we're dour, but because we wondrously take the cross seriously. The cross tells us of the finished work of Christ and his work to defeat sin and its power. And so we guard the name of Christ in our life together. It's why we take seriously covenanting together as a body. Have you ever thought of church membership not just as a technicality, but as an act of love for other Christians? Because you're saying, I'm committing to you. Will you commit to me? It's also why a church that really loves each other will, if a brother or a sister's confession can't be held in, in regard in, in light of their life, that the church disciplines in love. A church that refuses to do that doesn't actually love. Because sin's most terrible consequences aren't ultimately in this life, but in the life to come. On that final day when the consequences of sin are eternal, when Christ determines destiny, sin always has consequences. Always. It's never free. It comes with great cost. 
in all their different ways, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, Esau sin. And each one of them will taste the consequences. But praise our God, sin does not get the last word in this account. What does? God's grace, God's power. And that's where we end briefly this morning. God's grace, God's power. There is a lot of sin here, but there's more grace. God's grace, God's power are greater and deeper still. What do we have at the end of all of this dysfunctional family relationships? We have the promise of the blessing passed down. And that means God's salvation plan has not stopped. All of this did not prevent God from his purposes to save. And what's more, what they meant for evil, God meant for good. The theme that's going to come back in Genesis and ultimately at the cross. How good and gracious must our God be that after his people were sinning against him, he didn't turn against them. God saves sinful people. He's committed to sinful people. There's no other people for God to save. If you're here and you're trusting Christ, no matter how much you're struggling with sin, you're not the odd person out. You're in a family of of strugglers. The ground really is level at the foot of the cross. We're all beggars. We're all coming to the same cross together. It's God's grace that frees us and it fuels us together to be a safe community for strugglers. So there's freedom and safety here to take off your facade and to have the the time and the grace to grow and to make progress. God doesn't give up on his salvation plan. He's not given up in the face of our sin. What's remarkable is that our triune God was working through all of this to bring together his salvation plan for the world. Jesus wasn't surprised by any sinner When he came into the world, he came to defeat sin. Did you notice that Jesus was always more surprised when people had faith rather than when they sinned? I hope you see the logic, the beauty of the cross. I hope you see how gracious God must be to be this determined to save sinners like this, like us, like you, like like me. What would ever keep you clinging to your sin Instead of Jesus Christ, who's lived, who's died, who's been raised to defeat sin. Sin's power, sin's consequences do not have to be your story. God's grace and God's power can be. Come to Jesus Christ and find life and victory over sin. I hope for all of us that this sermon will warn us against sin. But I hope even more we walk away astonished at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ where God gloriously, sovereignly was leading this story. So when you think about this story again, be warned against your sin, but be even more astonished that God's grace triumphed over all of it. Each person here failed. But God didn't. His word is triumphing. His grace is triumphing. Don't try to clean up the mission of Jesus. 
Christ left the glories of heaven for the dysfunction of this world. Sin has reached dysfunction in our lives and in the world, and the cross addresses it all at the deepest level. We have a God in whom the family secrets are not hidden away in the closet. They're on the pages of Scripture, and they're there so that the cross might shine brighter and be more glorious to us. Sin has power. Sin has consequences. But the cross assures us that for those who will come in faith to Jacob's ultimate offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ, sin will not have the last word. The cross will. And the cross will change our destiny forever.